there is a lot of sort of runaway greed and issues in the world right now, but there are still people who care and are trying to make the world a better place in a sincere, non-smarmy, non-Sesame Street kind of way, you know, like thoughtful, intelligent people who are trying to study the world and make it better. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 130 of the podcast that explores our place in time. And for anyone who has been listening to this show for a while, you know that a big piece of this is making sense of the ways that being human are changing in digital society. That includes the way that we understand identity, the way that we understand community, the way that we understand family. So I'm really excited about this week's guest, Lydia Lawrenson, uh, the editor of a, a new publication I am very excited to uh, pitch to here soon, The New Modality, which is kind of the magazine version of Future Fossils, interrogating all of the assumptions that we've made about our lives and exploring all of the different ways that people are making meaningful lives in this day and age. I think it'll function very nicely as a, a kind of repository for future archaeologists. So I'm delighted to share this conversation that Lydia and I recently had. And the more I got to know about her, the more grateful I am that this kind of media initiative is happening, especially in the wake of the hostile takeover uh, and transfer of Reality Sandwich and the uh, sudden homelessness of the enormous community of amazing writers that were participating in that for so many years. It seems really kind of absurd and awesome and bizarre and, and just delicious that a new print magazine is coming out that provides a, a platform and an arena for the investigation of these ideas. But before we get into this week's episode, I would like to give my profound gratitude to everybody supporting this show on Patreon, including this week's new patrons, Jamie Baldwin-Gaviola, Marzia Bragion, I hope I'm saying that right, and Nate Bandit. All of you are joining a, a, what I believe to be just a wonderful group of people over there who are helping me keep this show independent and ad-free and responsible to no one but you, the listening audience. This is not a uh, buying elections kind of space. <laughs> this is more of a mutual gratitude and enrichment kind of space. And to that point, just to let you know about a couple things that I've put out lately on the Patreon feed, uh, one of which is a conversation I had with my friends Zach Nasser and Matt Dorsey, both really, really uh, intelligent nutritionists and uh, holistic medical thinkers about nutrition and about nootropics and about the work of healing in this time. Um, that actually is a public conversation. Whether you're a patron or not, you can go check that out. And thanks to the work of Future Fossils listener and Patreon supporter Andrew Waite, we now have a transcript for that episode also. Uh, so you can hop over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and check that out. Uh, you can also go back there and, and read about the stories behind the 
first two productions that I've released as a singer-songwriter in quite a while. These are songs that I wrote while a Google Glass beta tester uh, trapped on probation in Central Texas back in 2013 and 14, and I've honed over years of touring, and I'm very, very delighted that I now have these very lush, rich, textural, groovy, deep, dark tracks to share with you. Actually, you can find those anywhere. They're Bandcamp, they're at Spotify, but I will continue to share work from that album as it continues, including uh, exclusive access to uh, Ableton Live sample packs and drum kits and early mixes of the songs to come. Because I really believe, much as I believe in the work that Lydia is doing at the New Modality, I believe in the importance of writing songs that are not just sort of nostalgia set pieces or weird club bangers, but perform this important task of articulating the complexity and the uh, ambivalent weirdness of living in this particular time. And that is the work that I am devoted to in all media. I hope that you will go check those two new songs, Transparent and Signal, out. So, If you get something out of this show, uh, if this has enriched your life in some way, I hope that you will consider becoming a supporter there. And of course, also, I hope that if you enjoy this conversation with Lydia, that you'll pop on over to the new modalities Kickstarter. There are, as of tonight, uh, 10 days left on that campaign and just, you know, chip them a couple bucks as well. Uh, because the world needs magazines like this, I think, right now. Anyway, enjoy this conversation. I sure did. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode with Eric Davis about high weirdness. This is really ultimately about promoting the the new modality, uh, but you've got this excellent backlog of work, and uh, yeah. it, you know it seems like the way to do this is to sort of take the lazy river down that body of work and into the new modality. Um, yeah, that probably makes sense. I mean, I was kind of no one else has done that actually in conversation with me about this, so it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. But obviously. I mean, from my perspective, that's the obvious way to think about my work. (laughs) Cool. I'm like, well, clearly it's about me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, in that case, why don't we just get going? And and however nonlinear this conversation is, is fine with me. And I hope I hope that it is what works for you. (laughs) Sounds good. Awesome. Lydia Lawrenson, it is a it is a pleasure after months of discussing this to finally open up the queue and get you in on future fossils. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks for making the time. Yeah. So I don't know precisely where to start because your, your history as a writer is very diverse and I think (laughs) it could touch on, uh, you know, like almost every, slice that this show you know every every angle that this show takes on uh you know exploring these 
these questions about new definitions and new categories and and the you know what life is in the space where these kinds of concerns are unfolding but i want to i want to uh, acknowledge that when you sent me a bunch of the the uh, articles that you've written which i will share in the show notes one of them was a piece that i had already read and loved uh mm. your your piece at vice on the latitude society and yeah and, and, everyone read that one that is quite possibly the most viral thing i've ever written in fact there's a great story about that article it went so mega viral that the saturday after it was published i went to brunch here in san francisco and mm-hmm. um it was brunch with like 10 or 12 people i only knew one of them she had sort of gathered people around to meet each other and you know we're all sitting around talking about what we've done that week. She has us go around and say like, what did I do this week that I thought was cool? And I was like, well, I published this article. And as I was saying that someone who was late to brunch came into the room and he was like, I'm so sorry. I'm late. I was super distracted because I was reading this article. (laughs) (laughs) It was awesome. Well, so I think that some of the, the concepts that you address in this piece will help us set the stage for some of the other work that you've done. So uh, maybe we just debrief people or uh, lay a little exposition for folks about your coverage of a year inside this weird secret society slash startup. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because I feel like there's so many... One of the reasons that I imagine this piece was so successful is that it speaks to so many different facets of uh, why it's it's weird uh, to be alive right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really... That, that was certainly... I mean, for me, when I first observed the Latitude Society as a thing, like when they gave me the, the invitation and the membership card and I started showing up to the events and investigating the thing and stuff like that, like the experience of it was very much of just being compelled in a vivid way. But when I later took a step back from the story, and even since that article was published, since the story has evolved about the Latitude Society in the years since, it really feels like it's been a complete microcosm of so many of the different forces that it touched on. And I think maybe at the time I I was just really sucked in partly because I was doing so many different things that were just so part of the zeitgeist that maybe it was just the water I was swimming in, you know, (laughs) like I was working in technology. I worked at a tech startup. I had been working at other tech startups. I think I maybe had more visibility or more distance on that work than a lot of people who do, because I, I had this previous experience where I had served in the Peace Corps and worked as a freelance writer and traveled and done a lot of different things, but I was still like very much in it, like in the, in the current, well, so I want to, you know, just in terms of the bouquet of themes that I, I see here, one is, you know, the thrill and the mystique of participating in a secret society, even one that you know has, is it, in essence what I love uh, Eric Davis calls operationalized fictions. Uh-huh, um, totally. That, you know, that you know that you're participating in something that's kind of made up and kind of bullshit. And yet... Mm-hmm. We are in an age, you know, to to nod as I frequently do to Doug Rushkoff and present shock and his his uh, deployment of 
the term narrative collapse that we're living in this world where you know information is so networked that it's often difficult to extract a coherent plot you know it's not just like we have literally lost the plot and so there's there is uh something about that in the this being the golden age of of long form narrative television you know this desire to immerse ourselves in the kinds of stories that our media milieu is in in some ways also actively eroding you know that we've lost this this you know that the, the secret society is sort of a holdover from these these uh you know pre-modern uh cosmologies that you know that we that we were enveloped in and surrounded by and so now you've got this you know this thing that even though you know it you the latitude society is is this weird sort of uh meta modern experiment it's it's nonetheless inviting simply because it it welcomes us back into this exploration of power and secrecy and story and anyway i mean that's what i that's that's yeah. the allure as far as i can tell well, it wasn't. It also wasn't immediately obvious when you joined that it wasn't a real thing in some sense. You know what I mean? Because the experience of joining was like you've been invited to join this special, secret, beautiful thing, and then you go and you see that. I mean, the experience itself is clearly very artistic and sort of weird and gamey, but it's also clearly expensively produced and beautifully made. And so sort of, I think a lot of people's initial experience was being like, well, maybe there, there is something here, right? Like maybe there is like a real thing, um, here. And so part of what was so weird and like vertiginously strange about that experience was just the realization of like, oh, this is a startup that made a secret society (laughs) and now it wants me to pay for the experience of having been invited into that. <laughs> like it was just it was just this like total 180 from the 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 original feeling of being invited which was so in this very different place, this very this feeling of being honored, right? Um mm. I remember um my editor advice actually wrote the the sort of pull text for that article, the text that you see if you're on social media. Um yeah. And it was really, really good. And I, I remember looking at it and feeling like he had actually almost seen what, what that whole experience was before I did. And the pull text for the article goes like this. The rise and fall of Latitude, an exclusive for-profit underground society started by a wealthy backer, is a fable for modern Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and know, I, mean just... I think a lot of what we're seeing right now, too, is sort of the country really grappling with themes of exclusion and inclusion in, in a deep way, right? Not in a shallow way. And around racial justice and gender, of course, but also around wealth. And I think um, we're really struggling with that, right? And part of the struggle of trying to cope with some people having so much wealth and other people having so little and sort of the vanishing middle class part of the struggle there is feeling like people are kind of trying to get on the train who have the opportunity. And so, you know, contact wins when so many people have so little contact with wealth becomes more valuable 
than it maybe used to be. And that's a theme that I think plays out tacitly in the story of the Latitude Society and is playing out at scale across the country and across the world right now. Yeah, you know, like I think of um, the discourse around hypermodernity and the way that 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 conversation talks about the global shopping mall in which the modern liberal actor has been transformed into this sort of transpersonal avatar of itself, the individual as institution. You know, like uh, there, you know, the Whitney Houston hologram tour is like a perfect example of this sort of nightmare uh, alluded to in Blade Runner 2049, where, you know, you, he goes to the, the ruins of Las Vegas and the, the casino is still haunted by the holographic performances of Elvis Presley. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And like this, this, this is the, what happens when we scale, you know, the, the absurdities of the, uh, capitalist production of externalities to a world stage and then we get this this sense in which the the human being has become an externality to itself and i mean <laughs> this is a little abstract but like mm -hmm. the the thing with the latitude society and and to your 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 point about you know sort of fetishizing uh, money and power and access and privilege that happens in these you know our our sort of dark age of game of thrones politics is <laughs> that uh or you know another really good example for folks who do the graphic novel world is uh lazarus which is this i don't know if you've read that but like sort of a post-apocalyptic america ruled by you know two plutocratic families and everyone's just trying to become a serf you know it's uh -huh. it's 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 like yeah. everyone just wants to be in in the house you know uh-huh Wow. And yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely had the thought that that's the direction we're going. I don't know if I've seen that exact scenario played out in science fiction, though. I mean, certainly there's gestures at it in media like Altered Carbon. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, it is, it is, there's, there's this thing with like uh, LARPing lifestyles of the rich and famous, I guess, is how you <laughs> would have put that. But it's also, you know, this, this ties into some of your other writing through, the the vein of surveillance capitalism and how we are led to believe you know when you talk about um civil rights and women's rights that we we can see if you're if you're into like century of the self and you know that documentary and how it shows mm -hmm. the how the civil rights movement is is interrupted or sort of co-opted by consumer lifestyle marketing and, you know, they're like, oh, you don't actually need equal political rights. You just need equal rights to define yourself as one of the haves. <laughs> right. You know, in, yep. and so it's, it is that sense that you experienced uh, of feeling really special and, and identified and then realizing that that this, you know, like in the film Her, when he finds out the Samantha operating system is is having like 700 concurrent intimate conversations <laughs> right with uh -huh. him and everyone yeah. else yeah so i mean i don't know it's um there's a link there i'd be curious to know you know how you feel that intimacy is sort of re uh, refigured in that uh -huh. space what what it means to be intimate or to be secret or to be chosen 
in this yeah. world where it, it it's yeah. it's very difficult to know when you're getting played. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different threads there. There's the thread where just the the media industry, and as a result, everyone affiliated with it, whether we like it or not, has just gotten so good at playing people in one way or the other. And it's hard to even know how to get back to sincerity, get back to sincerity or get back to real connection from there sometimes, um, especially if you're really acculturated in it. Like, um, so I, I've been launching this new publication this year, the new modality, as you know, and it's been a really interesting process trying to figure out what media norms I want to keep and which ones I I'd like to question or push back on a little bit as I found this organization. And, um, some of them are things where it's, it's actually quite difficult to even begin to communicate about it or reimagine it when I'm in conversation with other media industry employees. Like, for example, I have a really strong feeling that we do not want to use clickbait headlines. Like we don't want to represent mm. our coverage in that way. But if some, for example, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a reporter at a, at a major internet outlet and he was helping me edit one of our pieces for the new modality. And, um, he was giving me title suggestions. And to me, it felt like he just couldn't get out of that mode, you know? I was like, no, we don't want clickbait headlines. And he was like, but these aren't clickbait. And I'm like, <laughs> really? And so I actually got confused enough by that conversation that I took a list of these headlines to one of our advisors. I was like, which of these do you like? And my advisor was like, I like the ones that don't feel so clickbaity. And he pointed to the ones that, you know, I had composed to not be clickbaity. It was like, and so it was like my friend who works at this major national outlet, like could not get out of that frame right? It's like he writes headlines in a certain way. And like, there's just no moving him away from that now. Or maybe he could, but it would take quite a bit of sustained effort, probably. So that's one thing I think about is like, the water you swim in, when the water has become this like, weird, uncanny media stew, right? Like, what is it? What does it mean to to try to do something different? And then specifically, when it comes to personal connection, I actually have this whole thing where I occasionally just go back and look at thinkers that are from quite a while back and try to see which themes they were worried about and whether those are the same or different as the ones that I'm thinking about. And interestingly, there's a number of sort of very much older school thinkers like John Dewey in like the early 1900s, who apparently saw like small communities as being the answer. This is like a hundred years ago, and I feel like I've I've sort of been coming to the same thing. And when I first started thinking about small communities as being an answer to modernity, I was like, oh, it's because of social media, it's because of this, it's because of that. So to see him reaching the same conclusion in like the early 1900s was really fascinating. And I think there's just something I I have this idea that there's like a slot that we have in our brains, which is about trying to be in a smaller community with other people. And when that slot is, is going hungry, we feel the absence. Um, mm. And I think there's a lot of things in modern life that sort of feed that slot junk food, but aren't real food. Like social me a lot of social media companies maybe being one of those. And so I think about like, what is the healthy version of that that you actually can provide? Like, is it possible to scale a healthy version of that? Or is there really only 
one healthy version of that, which is like actually hanging out with people one-on-one, preferably living very nearby or with them, you know, like, is it, is this the kind of thing where like, really the only thing you can do is just go back to basics and there's just no, no broader solution that's going to work. I don't know. Because so much of media is about building community and trying to make sure that people are connecting both to your work and through your work. And so there's always an interest in media in trying to figure out a way to scale that, of course. But maybe sometimes you just can't. I don't know. So this feels like a very natural place to tie into the article that you wrote a couple of years ago for The Atlantic on pseudonymity. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that I, I think, uh, you know, the secret society seems to have emerged within the context of a scaling civilization w- within which certain traditions have to covertly signal to one another in order to persist within the the greater, uh, you know, heterogeneity and complexity and regulatory oppression of the human world as it grows that you wouldn't be a secret society unless you were hiding from someone else you wouldn't necessarily feel the need to hide from someone else if you were in a in a a group uh, a tribal or or clan based sort of setup where you know everyone it's small enough that everyone kind of shares the same worldview and there's something else about that and about the the collision between the world, the human world that we're familiar with, that's like in our blood and the world that we've created for ourselves that I think is evident. Uh, I heard John Perry Barlow speak a few years ago mm-hmm. at a Rootwire Festival in Ohio, of all places. Um, and uh, shout out to my, my friends in the Papadocio who used to throw that festival. But they, uh, he, he was talking about transparency and how for him growing up on a Wyoming cattle ranch and you know anyone who knows John Perry Barlow has probably heard him talk about this that there was no privacy you know everybody was in everyone else's business and that this only becomes a problem uh, at the point where society has scaled to the degree that people are aware of your business but you don't know they are and that that was his big thing was he's like, I don't mind if people know what I'm doing as long as I know what they're doing, the surveillance and the covalence part of it. But there's like, Interesting. There's a, you know, yeah, like, I don't know if uh, we can do that. And so, you know, it's, it's like, well, I mean, obviously, certain inequities, you know, power imbalances in data access are probably unavoidable or you know that it would be extremely difficult to imagine how you know how we could set up a society at scale that did not have these profound imbalances um just because of you know the way that networks provide increasing returns to people and really you know to me more and more the longer i spend at santa fe institute the more it looks like civilization is just one giant pyramid scheme um, but but your piece on pseudonymity I found was really important because I think, you know, one of the things that, that, that transparent small scale community does not allow for is what you, you mentioned, uh, Trisha Wang, uh, called the elastic self. Yeah. That, that's really know, important. I think I'd love to hear you explore that a little bit. 
in light of all this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I've been kind of, um, you know, sad to see certain aspects of the evolution of the internet over the last 10 years. I mean, that piece, as you know, and I'll just summarize it from for the listeners, I wrote this piece in the Atlantic about my experience as a pseudonymous blogger. And I had started this pseudonymous blog in 2008, really not having a plan to become like a semi-famous international expert on this topic at all. I was just trying to explore this topic, which was BDSM and alternative relationships and polyamory and all of that stuff, but especially BDSM. And I mean, I just having a pseudonym was just a straight up reaction to the stigma of writing openly about that. I was afraid to write openly about it. And also, I guess there was this element of my history where I have so much experience in game design and in online gaming communities that it's natural for me to be exploring a very deep part of myself in this forum where people didn't know my name, um, which was the blogosphere of the time, 2008. And then things got super weird, as they tend to get weird on the internet. And the form in which things got weird was that the blogosphere just exploded in like 2009, 2010. And I started getting calls from like Oprah's office and invitations to speak at major universities. And I was just like, what is this? Like, what is happening? Like, it just hadn't even occurred (laughs) to me that that writing would be the writing that was my breakout writing, you know? Um, And so then I was sort of grappling with this experience of having this famous pseudonym when I was trying to do that kind of part time and do other things with my what I thought of as, you know, my main life. Like I was I had like served in the Peace Corps and I was like in Africa for part of this time, trying to like relate to the people around me, many of whom don't have internet access and probably don't have a, have a very different conception of sexuality from the one that I'm exploring on the internet. But like, it was just like a very big difference between the two lives I was exploring at that time. Um, and eventually I sort of concluded last year, actually, that society had destigmatized BDSM enough that I felt safe coming out of the closet and that felt fine. But what's interesting about that process is that me creating that pseudonym and exploring in it was both a personal process and part of this broader societal process because that pseudonym, under that pseudonym, I became well known and I started giving these talks and having cultural influence and became part of the movement to destigmatize the thing, which I then was able to come out of the closet about. And so there's this notion which you alluded to, which is the anthropologist Trisha Wang calls the elastic self, which is this opportunity that you get if you're able to use pseudonyms or anonymity even to explore to explore new versions of yourself or new presentations of yourself. That gives you a place to sort of experiment with who you are and occupy what you like and not occupy what you don't in sort of a safer space than if you maybe came out into it under your real name. Um, But paradoxically, it's like, I think in some ways, if you imagine like a small tribe, right, which doesn't have access to any of the technology that we do, then if you say something to one member of the tribe alone, then there there aren't a lot of ways that that is necessarily going to get out to a lot of people. You know, I mean, if they tell everyone but they have no way of confirming that. So there was a notion of privacy or there was some sense of privacy back then that we don't have now. 
And maybe we're kind of compensating for that by putting ourselves in these little boxes where we have less contact with other people. I don't know. That's kind of a side thought, I guess. But (laughs) I think the elastic self may have been possible basically throughout human history uh, because there were always ways to explore different selves in different environments. It's just you have to build the way you do it differently, right? Like if there's no broadcast media and no recording, then you can just be a different person with everyone you interact with, mostly, you know? Right now, we can't do that. We have these like very cohesive social media identities and internet identities and like tracked identities that the government creates for us that, and, you know, identities that have to be consistent in order for us to interact with society. And that's, that is like very strongly pushed on us from birth. And so our ability to be free and experiment with ourselves in a way that isn't beholden to that can arguably really only happen if pseudonymity and anonymity and places where you can occupy a different virtual persona are made possible. Um, so I think those, those spaces are really important. You know, I, I'm, I'm reminded of the, you know, scaling in the de- developmental biology and how the, you know, we start out as this, you know, totipotent ovum and it's downstream of that as the organism grows we end up with all of these tightly regulated, very specialized cells, you know, and, and that this is sort of recapitulating this, this major evolutionary transition into multicellularity where there was, you know, like you're saying, like there's, there's a way in which the, the dynamics, the behavior of a simpler organism uh, are, are modulate with respect to a changing environment, but then as that as that cell gets folded into a complex animal or, or plant or whatever, that it its function becomes more and more restricted. And so we're at this point uh where the the innovation in a human being is is not happening mostly at the genetic level, it's happening mostly at the intellectual level. And so like if I'm to stretch this metaphor over civilization and what's going on now, it feels like real innovation has in some ways been foreclosed upon for individuals. Like you said, you know, we in order to inhabit this this in order to participate, in order to play the game, in order to make a planet scale civilization safe, uh, then you know, this is the rhetoric used with you know, when you talk about in that piece for the Atlantic, you're talking about uh, imposing real name requirements on social networks and so on. And it doesn't help. That's one of the things that's really interesting. Like there's no evidence that it actually makes people safer, which I just think is so fascinating. That's one of the most interesting things to me about the discourse around real names and anonymity and pseudonymity is like, there is this like, that battle has completely been won by these huge surveillance capitalism companies that have really pushed this narrative of like, people need to be using their real names or like our conversations are going to be terrible online and people won't be safe. And there's no evidence for that. (laughs) It's incredible. Well, I think about, you know, like going to the beach 
or to some big event that the crowd, you know, and what it what it means to be anonymous in the crowd. And obviously, you know, lots of people have written about anonymity in the metropolis. Um, but I think that there's this other sense, there's like the anonymity of the pilgrim and how, you know, participating in, I, I remember years ago, you know, talking with friends about how it felt as though the internet was our big cathedral building project as a species, that it was the thing that, that everybody could get behind, you know, now I'm not so sure, that, you know, there's like a lot of reflux and, and backlash and, and, uh, you know, understandable caution around the idea of like participating in, in, you know, building the, the armature that will enclose us all. But, you know, this, this idea of like going to the beach and you're with people that you don't know, and there's something kind of sacred about that, about meeting someone on the trail and, and knowing that what has brought you together is this, this, this mutual appreciation for that natural spot. And I feel like that that's sort of what happens, you know, that's what's granted us by pseudonymity online, uh, that, you know, it's in a way it, it, it restores to us a, uh, a pre-modern or even prehistoric uh, ability to encounter and relate to one another without all of the layers of bullshit imposed on us by these regulatory roles. <laughs> I guess, I don't know, what do you think? Like, is moving forward, you know, it seems like maybe there are certain spaces where we want to encourage pseudonymity and others where we don't. Well, I mean, it, it depends partly on what your agenda is, right? As a as a society, like I think in a liberal democracy, you absolutely should be encouraging spaces with pseudonymity and possibly just straight up anonymity. And I think you need those spaces. There's this book, Seeing Like a State. I, I actually have not personally read it, but I have talked about it and I keep intending to read it with a number of people. But one concept that I've kind of absorbed that I believe is presented in that book, although I have not fact-checked that belief, is this idea that um, a culture that is no culture is actually at the like end state of being perfectly progressive. And so in any culture, you need there to be spaces where people can kind of slide under the radar because that's how progressiveness happens, right? Like you need, if you, if you're going to have slavery and you want there to be a hope of breaking the back of something like slavery in a progressive culture, then you need to have the places where people can slide under the radar and organize and create the Underground Railroad, for example, right? Mm, yeah. So it becomes almost like a moral imperative to have that space if what you want is for your culture to be getting more progressive and more liberal and more liberated. So to me, it's unquestionable that these spaces are needed, but the forces that I see pus pushing back against them are forces that maybe have never dealt with the particular types of problems that you solve. Like, I mean, I think one of the things that was really revealing about kind of the large corporate push for real names was, you know, I'm not going to name names, but like the CEOs of companies <laughs> that were like, we need real names on our media platforms were white men, you know, and they were just like, well, I don't have any secrets. It's like, okay, dude, like maybe you 
don't have secrets that you believe can harm you because you are in an unbelievably safe and privileged position, right? It's like, how could someone like that relate to someone who needs to hide in order to survive? Um, or who needs to hide in order to explore an aspect of their personality that society is incapable of recognizing, you know, like one of the big things, one of the big pieces of pushback that managed to actually gain some ground was, uh, trans people, right. Being Mm -hmm. like, no, you can't make me stay with my birth name, (laughs) right. That's, that doesn't work. (laughs) Um, that's not who I am. And that, that, that type of pushback managed to gain some ground, um, but that principle, I think, is much bigger than just that tiny little carve out that trans people manage to get in these real name policies. It was like the right to be forgotten is also a piece of this. It's like there's a totally yeah. There's an acknowledgement that you know simply that you know the the sort of one dimensional carve into uh, you know private public or or real name otherwise is assuming you know, a stable, continuous self. And that's just not mm-hmm. the world that we live in. Right. right. Like, well, you know, we, we grow and we change. That would be my guess. Yeah. Like that, you know, that I think, and the right to get the right to be forgotten really, I think uh, makes, you know, puts this in very simple terms, you know, like one of the things you brought up in that, that piece with the Atlantic was people getting fired over getting, photos of them holding a beer in college, you know, and for those, for the archaeologists living, you know, centuries from now listening to this episode, that actually happened, you know, that I, I, I spoke to a woman a few years ago who was fired for you for saying fuck on Facebook on her mm-hmm. personal profile, which was unattached to any brand identity page. Wow. You know? Where did she yeah. work? I don't remember, but yeah. I mean, that was an office job you know yeah yeah fascinating and it was yeah it was it was again it was one of these things where it's like oh her boss who felt like he had nothing to hide you know was like was able to make that call and i mean i think one thing that i thought about a lot when you were when we were seeing the pushback against secret which was a anonymous messaging platform that i was tracking for a while an anonymous social media platform i loved secret i actually wrote a piece about secret as well i don't know if i sent that to you but that one ran yeah you did business review around the time that Secret closed, because there was this very tiresome narrative around Secret that was part of why the company closed, which was like cyberbullying, like it's an emergency and therefore Secret has to close, right? Um, And I mean, there was definitely distasteful stuff happening there that I didn't like to read, like people airing thoughts where I would just read it and just be like, oh my God, I wish I didn't know that one of my friends thought that, (laughs) you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> like very, really dark stuff. And some of it very like racist and sexist or just like, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as someone, again, I like am into BDSM. I'm like into like exploring deep fantasies, but there's a difference between that and like believing things about the world. And I don't know, there, there was this aspect of secret where sometimes I would log on and I would just be like, Oh my God, this person is a friend of mine. And I can see that because they're labeled in the app as a friend, but they have this belief that they are putting on secret. And I'm really disturbed that I know someone who thinks that. But on the other hand, one of the things that was most powerful about secret was that it was a channel for people to talk about things that were happening in their lives that they couldn't talk about for bad reasons, right? So there were, there were conversations on there among women who were raising VC money, for example, being like, Hey, 
avoid this one VC partner, you know, like he tried to pressure me into having sex with him for money. And like, I wish I'd known that that's what he was doing when he asked to meet me at 5 p.m. on a Friday or whatever. Right. There was a lot Mm. of this sort of like back channel communication happening there. And I thought it was actually very revealing that a lot of the narrative about secret being this like hotbed of cyberbullying was coming from people in power. Like people who were major VCs, for example, being like cyberbullying on secret is a big deal. It's like, I don't know, man, is it? Or is it that like you don't want these people to have a channel to trade con to like scale that conversation or make that conversation more accessible about what's really happening in these arrangements and how to push back against the powerful there? I had that thought a lot. When I, when I sort of saw the discourse around Secret, I was really disappointed that it closed. There's this new app mm. called Blind, which is f- specifically for like sharing work gossip secretly. I, I haven't used it, but I get the impression that it's very similar to Secret. That's very bizarre. Like, who would actually want to share intramural gossip Oh, you know, through an enclosed container, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like you'd have to be, you know, totally colonized. Like you're talking about like your editor or your friend, you know, who works for the big publication. Like you just have to have forgotten, you know, like we, I remember growing up in, in, uh, I went to grade school in Florida in the nineties. So the, the West Indian manatee was the, uh, the charismatic endangered species that was always mentioned in terms of. One day you'll be telling your children about this thing, that this crazy animal that used to be alive, unless you do something. And it's like, you know, so we, I grew up thinking about, you know, a world without manatees or rhinos or whatever, but it never occurred to me that, you know, until I was an adult, that I would have a hard time explaining a world where your communication wasn't being recorded to my kids. Mm-hmm. Like that would be, that would be the, the real, you know, that's the real thing that went extinct without any of us noticing or caring. This is getting a little, a little dingy here. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. I think it's, I want to open this up a little bit uh, because, you know, you talking about your, your pseudonymous writing for BDSM stuff. And I think, is it cool for us to go into Clarice Thorne here? And yeah, of course you're yeah, already, I mean, you're already outed last year. So everyone knows I wouldn't have sent it to you if it wasn't open. Cool. Yeah, because I think this is a really good place to lead into some of these other concerns about identity and, and culture and meaning that have transferred into the work that you're doing with the new modality. So mm-hmm. um, it's just, yeah, I mean, I will say to this point, I feel sort of envious, or maybe the word is like, sort of disappointed that I didn't make a similar decision in my life. Uh, that I really, I had, you know, I was practicing uh, performatively this conviction for years that I should just do everything under my own name and that anything that I'm not, anything that doesn't fit, anything that's like potentially incriminating is just going to get lost in the noise. Like I saw this TED talk about how Mm. this guy was like recording all of his meals and like every time he went to the bathroom for uh, TSA, you know, because they had been detaining him in, in airports because he had he shared a name with someone on the the no fly list. And so he just started recording his entire life and spamming the TSA with too much information. Wow. And they didn't they didn't know what to do with it. And I was That's so inspired. 
I was so inspired by this. I was like, oh, you know, this is really before machine learning took off. And right, yeah. and right. and so I I really for I don't know, 5 or 10 years there was just like forget it. Like let's just go, you know, like perfectly transparent society. I'll go uh-huh. first. And and then meanwhile all of my friends were like, well, I'm going to I'm going to do my acoustic act under one name and then my electronic act under a different name and that's uh-huh. what worked. That's what worked because there's this thing about you know the the partitioning of identity is important not just for protecting the rights uh, that you have to say what you want to say, but also helping people know where to place this identity that you've created, that you're performing. You know, that if you're, if, if everything you do is under the same name, it turns out, in my experience, then it's like too much for people. And so it seems as though the plural the plural identity or a reclamation of our multiplicity is not just about like a scientific revelation that you know about the microbiome and and horizontal gene transfer and all that but uh and that all of this is sort of an adaptation to an environment that encourages not just an elastic self but a plural a plural self and and really rewards that because it's somehow more like respectful of other people's time and attention. Mhm. Interesting. So and yeah, so I'm I don't know. I mean it, you you've already said, you know, why you made this decision, but um yeah, to hear more about the experience of of writing, you know, behind a fictional identity and what it was like to actually like come out into into public and give talks as right. Clarice like that yeah, that's yeah. kind of like blowing my mind i mean it was very it was definitely very interesting i mean even just 10 years ago it was just a different time like when i started that blog the internet just felt different it felt very feasible to start your little random website and have this fake name and it was fine you know <laughs> like yeah i mean it's hard to even recapture or explain what that was what that was like somehow it's just so different it's just so different. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess, as I said earlier, you know, it wasn't a very calculated decision on my part. I mean, it was calculated in the sense that I really wanted to be part of this online conversation that was happening in the blogosphere at the time. The blogosphere at the time was awesome. I mean, it was just such a cool space. There was so much energy there. People were really exploring these deep ideas. And unfortunately, that whole space has just gotten totally... um, overrun by sort of mainstream media figuring out the internet slash social media making different kinds of tools but for a while it was like the place where interesting conversations were happening at the edge of culture and that's why i created that pseudonym and wanted to be there because i was really preoccupied with these questions of understanding bdsm as an identity and making sense of it for myself so the kind of transition to that becoming a more like official thing that I was doing, I mean, it would be disingenuous to say that I didn't want that to happen, right? Because as soon as I, once I realized that it was happening, I certainly pursued it. Like I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. Like there's a way that I can gain some legitimacy here and gain some status and bring my writing to a bigger platform and it's it's really cool to have that experience of like Oprah's office calling you, you know. But I did have this problem, as you note, which was that 
sometimes these people would invite me to appear in person. And so when Oprah invited me, for example, I was like, no, I can't. And I, I said yes to smaller appearances, but every once in a while there would be kind of like a, like a moment where there would be like crossed wires or a challenging negotiation around that. So in 2012, I was invited to speak at South by Southwest as Clarice Thorne. And, um, that was, I think like maybe the last, like right at the end of the time before everyone had cameras in their phones. So it was still Mm -hmm. conceivable that I could do it and people wouldn't get pictures who were just like everyday people, you know, but I had to go, I had to, I had to like really enforce it with South by Southwest. I was like, I can only come if there's no pictures and no video. And they were like, okay, well, we were hoping to stream you stream the panel. And I was like, well, you can't. And they were like, okay, well, (laughs) we're going to need your picture for your badge. And I was like, well, I can't come if you want my picture for my badge. It was just like this like long conversation. And I mean, it's funny, even looking back at that, that was 2012, which was four or five years after I started. And even then, the conversation was still really different from what it is today. Like today, it's like if you're trying to be pseudonymous or anonymous or anything, like making a public appearance of any kind would be almost impossible. Um, (laughs) Unless you had a really, really strong gentleman's agreement among the people who were present which you're never going to be able to enforce at a place like South by Southwest. So, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, I loved about your, uh, you, you posted this uh, piece and an announcement on Facebook when you came out of the closet as Clarice Thorne. Yeah, that's and, right. And you mentioned uh, that part of this move wasn't just about uh, it becoming, you know, n- normalized and and culturally acceptable, but that you were also your your personal interests in writing about sex and relationships were expanding to include uh, alternative parenting, uh-huh. and uh, I thought, you know, since since this is a pillar of the kind of stuff that new modality is going to be covering, mm-hmm. um, I'd really love to get into this because I, I I feel like there's a there's a lot more room uh, on this show and in general for these kinds of discussions about, you know, poly parenting and, and co-housing and platonic co-parenting and, and like technologically assisted parenting and like all of this really, really interesting stuff. And I'd love to, I'd love to hear sort of where your head was at in, you know, moving, you know, from sort of sexual relational consent kind of conversations into these, these broader evaluations. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was another thing that was really driven by personal experience where I sort of was having this, I think, very typical urban female professional experience of entering my thirties and being like, okay, I don't have a partner to have kids with yet. So I guess what I have to do now is like really enforce that requirement on any sexual or romantic relationship I get into. Um, and be like, either we're doing this or I'm out. And that's just really hard. So it's a really awful space to be in. And I sort of hit this point a few years ago of really like being in despair about it. I had this relationship that was really important to me that had fallen apart, partly because he didn't want kids and we were in love and like, we wanted to be together, but like we kept fighting cause he didn't want kids and I wanted kids and we wanted to be primary partners, but we were like, how is this going to work? And like, 
I don't know. It just, in retrospect, it all seems very pointless. A lot of the arguments that we had, but they were, they were super real at the time. And, um, after he and I broke up, I went on OkCupid and I found this weird profile under the name future best dad. This guy (laughs) was like a 96% match and I'm reading this profile. I'm like, okay, who is this? And it turns out he's like a kinky poly weirdo, um, with like a PhD who like runs a department at Google and just got a divorce and he's almost 40. And he's like, I really want kids. I don't know how I'm going to have kids. I'm really stressed about it. I don't want to go through the process of trying to make another entire romantic relationship work just to have kids. That doesn't seem right somehow, you know, like that means that I have to spend like several years testing somebody out and then making this commitment to have children with them. Like, why don't we just cut straight to the kids part? Like, how about I find someone who also wants kids and we have like a conversation about this and maybe it's romantic and maybe it's not. And I was like, who is this guy? So I messed him and I was like, Hey, you know, I've written under the name Clarice Thorne. I'm like, maybe personally interested in you and maybe not, but like, let's have a conversation. So we ended up meeting up and hanging out a bunch and he, by the time I met him, he was actually already in the midst of the, of the process of um, having this, creating this like platonic parenting relationship with another woman who it turned out was also in my social scene, interestingly. And they were doing the whole thing where like they did the artificial insemination and they were, they were really figuring it out. Like, how are we going to have children without having a romantic relationship? Um, and, but he had a problem which was that it was not clear that she would allow him to use her eggs if he ever wanted children of his own. Because their arrangement was that she had total, I guess, um, I I don't even know what to call this, like sole parenting rights, I guess, over their offspring. And Mm. she wasn't sure if she would want him to use her eggs in order to have his own children. And so he was like, you know, Lydia, I have no idea where this is going, but like, you're 33 now. I will pay for your egg retrieval procedure and I will pay for the first 10 years of storage costs and maybe I'll use those eggs and maybe I won't. And I was like, okay, cool. Sounds like a great deal. (laughs) Um, So we did that. And that was sort of my introduction to the notion of like really exploding this category and thinking about this, these types of relationships in a different way. And I ended up starting to sort of like, I convened like a couple of mini conferences about this topic of alternative parenting in San Francisco. I had a little bit of a newsletter for a while, like I was really putting time into it. And my next primary relationship, which I am still in, um, my partner and I are coming up on like two and a half years, was also with someone who doesn't want children. But it's been a much easier conversation because I was just like, you know, I know you don't want kids, but I want kids, but I'm okay doing that with somebody else. And obviously that introduces certain complications and we have conflict about that, but it's nowhere near the level of conflict that I was having previously when I would like fall in love with people who didn't want kids. And then it would be this like crazy mind bending, awful fight, you know? So it's been this very personal thing. And there was a point where I was like, oh, okay, like my work as Clarice Thorne actually is relevant to this in the sense that Clarice Thorne was kind of at the forefront of relationships and sexuality at that time. And I think this alternative parenting stuff is in a similar place. Like I have a similar feeling about it where it's like, if you assume that we don't undergo some sort of like really crazy major social collapse, which obviously is not necessarily a safe assumption, 
But if you assume that society stays on like relatively a similar trajectory to where it's been at for quite a while, our old notions of the family are just going to keep dissolving, you know, with no fault divorce and genetic infertility tech that allows us to kind of do whatever we want. And um, all these different notions of parental relationships and there, there's just more and more people are realizing that having a child with somebody isn't necessarily something that couples tightly to a traditional monogamous romantic relationship. And um, that trend is something that I think is really, really important um, and also very challenging for those of us who are like in the middle of it and trying to live our lives this way. I mean, a problem that I have right now is like, okay, if I'm looking for a platonic co-parent, then like, how do I meet that person? You know, Mm -hmm. like even just trying to make, a dating profile, it's hard enough being non-monogamous, right? It's like, this just explodes all of the categories. And so it's like, I had this, I was recently sort of like testing a coffee meets bagel profile. And like, I had a profile that I thought was pretty clear. And then some guy messages me and, you know, we're chatting. And then he's like, oh, hey, just to make sure you're not polyamorous or anything, are you? Because like, I'm family minded. And I saw from your profile that you're family minded, but like, I'm not polyamorous or anything like that. And I was like, what part of non-monogamous did you not see? Like that was in there twice. And I was very clear. So I like went back and like rewrote my profile to be even more clear and aggressive. Like, and there aren't that many words in Coffee Meets Bagel. So now that's like the entire profile, right? There isn't really anything in there about my personality. It's just like, (laughs) hello, I am looking for this extremely weird arrangement. But yeah, so like that's, that's kind of an issue that's preoccupying me right now since I'm at this like this very very different place from the cultural mainstream but even with that i still think it's a place that i more i inhabit more comfortably than the place that i was before um which was Mm -hmm. trying to make it work in this system of like family relationships that just feels like it's increasingly irrelevant yeah you know i i I wrote a piece i used this sort of notion of the three parent family or the, you know, someone raising their clone, you know, or the, the, yeah, the weird, like, you know, men and women, uh, having their own sort of, you know, single sex communities where they're raising their own, you know, their people are going in on a child, like a worker owned cooperative. And they're, you've got like six to 10 DNA contributors and they're all like, there's just so many different ways that this is going to go. And right. it feel you know, something that comes up on the show a lot is that it feels like, you know, the emergence, the eruption of Protestantism in Europe and how like once the Catholic Church lost its hold over the story, you know, lost its authority to determine how people relate to their their religion, then you ended up with all of these admittedly like to the I will I yeah, I think a big theme on this show is that evolution trends towards more opportunity more options more freedom but that there's also a theodicy involved in that that that's that 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 requires us to accept uh all kinds of new risks and uh challenges as well and the opportunities for new forms of of violence and new forms of pathology and i don't know why my head is always drawn to like worrying about these you know in the same way that you know like we expanded in mid 20th century in america we expanded into the suburbs you know like we a a new a new volume of of opportunity opened up in the the so-called adjacent possible and we expanded into it and it was not great 
it was messed up and it harmed a lot of people, you know, and like uh, so much, I think of our, of our confusion. So, I mean, it's like, I don't, I, this is, I guess me putting a tentative kind of very, very cautious, uh, bid for some compassion for the people who are really eager to like retrench themselves in traditional values amidst all of this change. Yeah, and, I think that's right. I feel a lot of compassion as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think yeah, it's going to work, right? That's the thing is like, <laughs> yeah. I, I see why people have that urge, but there's just so many aspects of those values where that ship has just sailed. Like it's just gone. And you can sort of maybe try to occupy those values if you manage to find a very small group of people who are all really committed to doing it with you, um, you see this reflected on, on the right wing and sort of conversations like the Benedict, the Benedict option and stuff like that, where like, oh, tell, me, tell me more about that. I don't know about the Benedict control. option. What's that? What is the Benedict option? I don't, so I'm not super familiar with it, but my understanding is that it, it's a small group of, um, more right-wing sort of highly religious traditional people basically just being like the only way we're going to survive this cultural era is by completely withdrawing from society and creating small communities where it's just us. Hmm. And I mean, I don't know, man, like I don't share their values, but if I was in their position, I might reach the same conclusion. (laughs) Like, I mean, trying to hold down that type of morality in a society that's completely pluralistic um, and individualistic and atomized is just really, really hard. And I, I see the problems that they're pointing at. You know, it's like, I agree. Like, we are very atomized. Like, it is very hard for people to rely on each other. That's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. But I just don't see how you can fix that by trying to go back to the model that broke upon the advent of modernity, right? It's like that mm-hmm. that model failed because of the conditions that we are experiencing now. So you have to find a way to build on those conditions and accept them and integrate them instead of like completely turning your back on them if you want to, you know, make it for the long haul, you know? So this is part of why I'm also passionate about, you know, co-living and there's a bunch of um, themes for the new modality, my new publication, which I think of as, uh, in my head, I sort of categorize these as in- independent yet interdependent themes, where I want us to be able to hold on to the individual rights and the independence that modernity has brought us. But I also think that we really need to find a way to come back to some notion of interdependence, both on a, on a micro scale, you know, as humans with each other and on a macro scale with the planet. Like, because the idea that we exist in isolation also doesn't work. Um, so I, a lot of, I feel like a lot of how I think about lifestyle today, I guess a lot, I mean, a, a lot of topics, but especially lifestyle, is just that we really need to figure out this independent yet interdependent thing. Mm. So, you know, to that point, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad we found a natural place for me to bring up the policy briefs that you did for the Tota Peace Institute. <laughs> yeah, that's because right. that's, a, that's so funny. It's like a totally different project. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. And yet, you know, the, you know, to, to do the, to this research on polarization and peace building and governance on digital media, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting, I just, I just spoke to, uh, Mirta Galasic at Santa Fe Institute for the podcast that I've been doing for them over there, uh, Complexity Podcast. And mm-hmm. we talked a lot about this stuff that you and I have been talking about, uh, uh, about the scale at which human social behavior and learning and decision making evolved uh, in contrast to the scale at which society is asking us to make decisions today. And how uh, one of the papers that we discussed of hers was about you know why it is that uh, committees and juries stay small you know why it is why it is that when we put together a panel of experts we don't put together a panel of thousands of experts mm-hmm. you know and it's it, part of it is because um if the problem is complex enough that no expert really truly understands it then you're actually better off with like a slightly larger sample that includes you know more random members of the population people that might have a different angle you get more of a wisdom of a crowd thing going on but then that starts to dilute after a certain point and you lose the the value held between these different things this is this is for like if there is no effect if there's no objective ground truth you're not counting beans in a jar you're trying to come together to like you know like an election or something you know where it's Uh it's a it's a decision we're making together but then if the situation or like you know on policy like what do we do about climate change um but if the situation is simple enough that your average expert can understand it then adding more people doesn't actually improve the decision making ability of that group you know you're just adding the the regulatory overhead of involving more and more experts and so there is to this this point about your briefings uh maybe that was all just sort of a i don't know it's kind of a not a perfectly uh low activation energy segue but um (laughs) (laughs) but you know i thought it was really interesting you know to talk about you know this piece on your work into filter bubbles and polarization and how these things are not the evidence suggests that they're not being driven by social media or digital media more broadly in the way Mm -hmm. that we we tend to think they are but at the same time it is the case that it's just this long tail effect, you know, the rule 34 effect, the like the notion that there is someone out there that no matter how bizarre your idea of parenting is, someone else, you know, we're talking about 8 billion people now, someone else out there has the same idea. And it's, mm-hmm. it, you know, but maybe you don't find them because the network is so huge and you're on opposite ends of it. And so, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, your uh-huh. your your thing about whether you know in what way polarization is or is not related to our technological environment and uh it you know may it seems as though it's not that it, it feels as though yeah maybe it's not that polarization is being driven by the outrage profiting uh algorithms that you know, are typically blamed for this, but that it's, it's simply that because there are so many more options than there were, 
that you know because each of us is getting more and more unique like there's this uh almost mystical like Teilhard de chardin talking about hyper collectivization driving hyper personalization until like you know i can almost imagine the end point of this being everyone has their own you know is their own government and their own religion and prints their own money and has their own constitution and you know and their own uh cosmology and and then you know we we have to sort of exchange our our uh public keys in order to understand each other's languages and it just it seems as though everything is is fragmenting very naturally um even as we are woven together into these greater and more inclusive interdependencies um so that's that's how i would uh, in a very convoluted baroque and and painful way uh <laughs> bring those two things together <laughs> i don't know interesting yeah yeah and it's not really a question that's just that's just me slapping that out uh and uh, just me offering this bizarre sort of bundle of crap off. yeah totally <laughs> there's a great there's a great quote do you know who andre morat is no was i think he's no longer alive anyway He's uh he was like a French writer of some description. Not really someone that you would normally encounter in our circles, but I read a lot of weird stuff cuz I worked in a bookstore in my early 20s. So, I just saw all these books. It's an antiquarian bookstore. Anyway, um <laughs> I'm thinking of him because he has this great little volume called Conversation, which is literally just 100% a book of observations about how conversation works. Uh, he has these like different categories and ways of thinking about it. But one of his observations is, um, a lot of conversation is a game that requires a kind of mad boldness. Anyway, Mm. just reflecting on that. Sometimes you just need to go for it, man. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, to, to go back, to go back to the, to the topic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, so those policy briefs were a really interesting question because I don't, I don't normally write in such a formal way, of course. But last year, in 2018, I actually spent um, quite a bit of time that year researching the impact of digital media on society because I had this nonprofit client that put me on retainer for like 20 hours a week just to do that. It was really interesting because it, it gave me a chance to kind of like move more to this research end of things as opposed to the applied end of things where I normally am. You know, like I'm normally actually writing the thing or building the thing or even as a user researcher, you know, you're you're doing product research to build a product. That's normally where I am, as opposed to just trying to understand what is happening, which is kind of pure applied research, like what I was doing for them. And then through them, I met the Toe to Peace Institute and they commissioned me to write that policy brief, which was cool because the research that I was doing for the nonprofit was kind of locked up in the nonprofit, like I wasn't publishing it anywhere. And so TOTA, in commissioning those policy briefs, gave me a forum to just put the research out into the world. Mm. But yeah, I mean, as as you note, like, um, we don't have very good evidence that polarization is being driven by digital media. Although since those briefs were published, I saw an interesting study recently. It's a 2019 study where basically they did as close as I could get to basically doing a controlled experiment and exposing someone to Facebook. Like they gave half their experimental subjects the instructions to be on Facebook (laughs) 
uh, for 10 minutes a day. And then they gave half their experimental subject, the instruction to not be on Facebook. And they like controlled how this, how the time was spent and like a bunch of other stuff. And what they found was very specifically that people who were on Facebook in this controlled experiment, um, had less well-being and were more polarized so that, that was really interesting for me because most of the research that I've seen has indicated that digital media isn't contributing to polarization. It could be that Facebook is just a unique thing um, and that it's different from the rest of the internet in some way. A lot of the previous research about whether the internet is driving polarization uh, is from a few years ago. So it could be that now we have platforms that are actively driving it forward and not just reflecting it. But... Yeah, it's hard to say. So this this gets into this question, of the argument of whether or not uh, the plural of anecdote really is data. Um, <laughs> sort of a philosophy of science argument. But, you know, it, it does seem kind of ubiquitous that um, the experience of being online is one in which the nature of pseudonymity or anonymity is different then I was talking about earlier when you, you meet someone on a trail or on a beach, um, that there's still in those moments, there's still the opportunity for eye contact for some deep animal interaction, you know, some mutual recognition at that level of being. Whereas, you know, moderating large Facebook groups, it seems the environment of social media invokes in us a response that is i think something akin to the desperation and aggression of a trapped animal <laughs> and <laughs> well and, what's, and the, part of what's interesting about social media is that you can literally just experiment on what container you're going to put around people's interactions and see what happens um yeah and most of that data is locked up inside these companies which um for the most part are not sharing their data unfortunately so researchers who are trying to figure this out are like building all these like test platforms and using all these weird proxies and it's kind of a mess. But there is one researcher, Talia Stroud, who I mentioned in the policy briefs about polarization. Her work is really interesting where she literally built a dummy platform of some kind. I think maybe she was doing it in news comments as opposed to Facebook specifically, but she built a system where she tested different types of buttons to see what types of conversations came out at the end of it. She was like, what happens when you have a like button? What happens when you have different buttons? The button that came out as yielding the best quality of conversation, um, in the opinion of that set of researchers, was a button that said respect instead of like. So one where you could um, like hit respect, presumably even for, for opinions that you disagree with, right? Um, Whoa. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So... I mean, it may be that there's something specific about in-person interaction that we're just never going to capture capture through these platforms. But also, there's this thing happening where, I mean, very literally, they are just not incentivized to create a real deep connection to between people on their platform. That's like not what most of these platforms are doing. And I mean, there's people at those platforms who care about those problems. There's a lot of really good, really intelligent, really thoughtful people who work at these companies. But like, 
in terms of the incentives that they are subjected to and the types of results that they are expected to get, it's kind of, it's, it's usually not in that wheelhouse, you know? Um, and so that's something that I, I think about a lot in sort of a wistful way is like, wouldn't it be cool <laughs> if, um, wouldn't it be cool if we were just designing these social media platforms on a completely different set of prior assumptions and incentives and beliefs about what we want from this conversation. And I sort of have this dream. I mean, I don't know, like the new modality of my new publication, who knows if it's ever going to be like a multi-million dollar operation. It'd be really cool if it was, (laughs) um, but we're doing subscriptions. So it's definitely not like an easy scale kind of deal. Um, it's like philanthropy and subscriptions. So people have to give us the money. So we're never going to have like VC funding, which means that we're never going to be subject to certain types of incentives. But, you know, it also closes off certain avenues like raising millions and millions of dollars right from the get go. And the cool thing about raising millions and millions of dollars right from the get go is that if I had that kind of money, I could put some of these ideas into practice in terms of like being the change that I want to see. Like, what if I just had millions of dollars and I could try to try to really build the platform that fosters conversation? That would be awesome. And I have this dream that eventually the new modality makes enough money that I can do that. And I can make the new modality itself into a platform that does that. And like, you'll see when it launches, like there's going to be what you could, what you could call social media elements on it, even from launch, even though I'm using WordPress and not a social media platform to build it. Mm. Um, but I want there to be like profiles and I want there to be elements of reflecting the community that are really woven into this publication from the beginning. But I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to build like the affordances that I can kind of see in my mind's eye that would make that conversation different. Damn. <laughs> yeah. So this is just, you know, to, to bring this full <laughs> circle, it feels, you know, like the, the question that the new modality is asking is very much, aligned with the question this show is asking which is what is a meaningful life in this rapidly changing world and uh normally i i would end these conversations with an invitation to leave a kind of a, a message to or question of whatever future might discover this but i'm curious since you are poised so firmly in the in the midst of this question whether you have any personal thoughts about what it what you believe editor of the new modality a uh meaningful life in this rapidly changing world is or whether that's that's a question that has to be answered by each of us individually or whether you think that you can offer something you think broadly applies to your fellow humans yeah. Oh, man. I mean, to some extent, we all have to figure it out for ourselves, of course. But I think the the sort of core elements and values that we're trying to express in the new modality, which I believe point in the direction that I, I kind of want society to be thinking about. Um, so I already mentioned the thing about independence plus interdependence, right? Like, I think we really, I think it would really help if we could start working on squaring that circle with both a belief in, of an empowerment and an individual rights, plus belief in interdependence and the value of community and ecosystems. But aside from that, 
also trying to square other circles like respect for spirituality plus respect for scientific method style rationality. Like there's so much sickness in our society right now that stems from the belief that those things are different or that they have to be opposed. That is such a problem. Um, and I, I mean, we have to figure that out as a way forward. I think we have to be pluralistic, you know, like we have to be really deeply embedded in like a, a belief that everyone has a, a worldview that deserves respect, just a lot of empathy, you know, and I'm trying to sort of hold that space for all of those things, right? All of that stuff, like in a, and also, you know, telling the truth, being transparent, being authentic, holding these values in an optimistic way is what I'm trying to do. And I don't know what the final systems are going to look like, but I see these directions that I want us to explore, you know, and that includes stuff like humane technology, like building technology that serves humanity and makes us better than we are, as opposed to driving humanity into a corner, you know, that includes stuff like trying to reimagine the family and reimagine relationships to better fit our new context and our powers that come with modernity as well as the limitations. It, it comes with all of these different things, just like the, the level of change that we're seeing, trying to address that in a really open-hearted way is the challenge of our times, I think. And mm. I hope that the future, if someone hears this, you know, centuries down the line, I hope that one thing they can hear from us is that we are doing our best, you know, like there is a lot of sort of runaway greed and issues in the world right now, but there are still people who care and are trying to make the world a better place in a sincere, non-smarmy, non-sesame street kind of way, you know, like thoughtful, intelligent people who are trying to study the world and make it better. Well, that's awesome. Lydia, thank you so much for being one of those thoughtful and committed people. And uh, thanks for appearing on the show. Yeah, totally. Oh, and one real quick note since we're wrapping. Um, yeah. Or I guess two. One is that our Kickstarter campaign is going to be live by the time we run this. So if we can mention that, that would be great. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Future Fossils. This podcast is a part of the MindPod network along with numerous other excellent programs. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. If you'd like to help support Future Fossils, consider giving this show a five-star iTunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations. For more episodes, show notes, copious extras, including music, art, the Future Fossils coloring book and book club, and more, visit patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. <laughs>